We are continuing today our series on Hebrews chapter 11 and looking at the topic of faith. Hebrews is a book that's written to people. It's a book written to people who are struggling with their faith. The reason Hebrews chapter 11 is given and we're given great models of faith is because the original recipients of the book of Hebrews lacked faith. They were struggling with faith. They were weak in their faith. In particular, this book is written to people who who knew the promises of God. If you read the book of Hebrews, it's filled with all kinds of references to the Old Testament of sacrificial systems and priests and blood. It's a book steeped with religious vocabulary. These people were familiar with God and his word and his promises, and yet they struggled to have faith because they didn't see the promises being fulfilled. They didn't see the promises being fulfilled and so their faith was eroding and shifting away from the living God and his son Jesus Christ and being misdirected towards other things, in particular old ways of Jewish religious observance. That's the big thing that's happening in the book of Hebrews. And so Hebrews 11 comes and the author gives several models of faith. And if you've been a Christian for a while or you've been around the church a while or are familiar with the stories of the Bible, you know that the people who appear as models of faith in Hebrews 11 are kind of a who's who of the Old Testament. Abel. Enoch, Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, people like this. And these models of faith, when we refer to them as models of faith, I want to use that language very carefully and talk about, well, what kind of model are they? I'm going to make this one clarification, then we'll read the passage about Sarah. I'll make the clarification by telling a story briefly. Last week, um, My daughter is getting ready to turn 13, Uh, our oldest is getting ready to turn 13, and so her idea of a really good Saturday afternoon now is going to the mall with her friends. And so last week, I had that great fatherly duty of taking her and three other teenage girls to North Park. And as I walked around North Park, if you walk through the, through the, Um, halls of North Park Mall, and you walk past clothing stores, you look in the windows of clothing stores, and what do you see? You see two kinds of displays. One is a photograph, you know, a large, beautiful photograph of usually a celebrity of some kind wearing products, wearing the, the watches or the sunglasses or the clothing, and they're wearing them because of who they are. They are doing this company a favor by being photographed and displayed wearing the clothing. The other things you see in the shop windows are mannequins. Mannequins who have no face most of the time, sometimes not even a head. They're simply a shaped canvas on which a clerk places the product, on which the clerk places the clothes. When we look at Hebrews 11 and we look at these models of faith, it's not a perfect analogy, but these people are more like mannequins than celebrities. They are people who 
in themselves don't have great faith to offer, but they are people whom God has clothed through incredible moments of redemptive history, people whom God has clothed with great faith. And so we look to these people and these stories in Hebrews 11, not to focus on the person in and of themselves, but to focus on how did God create great faith in them? How was he faithful to cultivate them and shape their lives into something that we can profit from and learn from? And so today, the story of Sarah. Sarah is one of two women that appears in Hebrews 11. Sarah and Rahab are the two women. And this morning, we'll read from Genesis 18 first, the story of Sarah's uh, hearing from God and laughing in the face of God. And then we'll read the verses from Hebrews 11 that refer to Sarah. One quick kind of uh, explanation note in, he- in Genesis 15, I'm sorry, Genesis 18, as we read this passage from Genesis 18, um, the three people that appear at the tent of Abram and Sarah, the three people that appear are some kind of visible manifestation of the triune God. We don't have time to explain how that works uh, textually, but that's how it's dominantly interpreted. That's how we'll treat it this morning. God is appearing to have a conversation with Abram and Sarai. So, Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. 
And now from Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that as we turn to your word this morning that you would speak, that you would meet us even in a similar way as you met Abraham and Sarah in that tent, that you would use your word to help us to encounter you, confront us in the areas of our lives where we lack faith, and grow our faith, we pray. Grow our faith, we pray, as we turn to you, the one who makes promises and fulfills them perfectly for us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. So Sarah is the first person in Hebrews 11, the first person that appears in Hebrews 11 whose appearance in the chapter with these models of faith, she's the first person who appears whose appearance comes as a real surprise because nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Genesis narratives do we ever read about Sarah displaying faith. We see, you know, we read the passage from Genesis 18 where Sarah is given the promise again of conceiving and bearing a son and she laughs in God's face. She had been given this promise earlier and had sought to fulfill it by giving her husband Abraham her maidservant Hagar, thinking this promise is too good to be true, surely God must fulfill it in some person other than me, that perhaps it's a promise to our family generally, not a promise that from my womb would come this son. And so she manipulates this situation and gives Abraham her servant Hagar. So in the Genesis narratives, Sarah's faith is not just weak or inconsistent. That's true of all of the people in Hebrews 11. All of them had moments of doubt and unbelief. Sarah is the one who appears and never in Genesis displays faith. We know she did possess faith eventually because Hebrews says so. But there's this gap between what Genesis says and what Hebrews says. Genesis displays her doubting, even scoffing at God's promise. Hebrews commends her for believing God's promise. And so we have to understand how did, how did this gap get filled? What happened in Sarah's life? What transitions occur? What processes occurred so that she would go from this doubting and despair, looking at the promises of God and finding them simply unbelievable and unreasonable and unfulfilled, how did she move from that point to what Hebrews 11 says about that she considered him faithful 
who had promised. How did that transition occur? Well, it occurred by God's grace. God doesn't give up on us when we struggle to manifest faith. God does not give up. He's at work always in our lives, putting us in circumstances in which faith is necessary and we must depend on him and his word. And so God was gracious. You notice even when Sarah laughed, God did not give up on her. God didn't say, you laughed at me. And so I'm withdrawing my promise. I'm revoking my promise. You are not going to be my covenant people. God says, you laughed. And in the very next sentence, and next year you will still have a son. I will return to you and your son will be born. Now internally, so God's promise is faithful and steady and is fulfilled, but internally God was at work in some ways shifting Sarah's attention and the focus of her faith in two big ways. Number one, Sarah's faith shifted at some point from looking at the promise itself to looking at the promiser. From looking at the promise to looking at the one who made the promise. The promise that she was given, the promise of in her old age conceiving and bearing a son was unbelievable. But the person who made the promise, the living God, was believable, was to be believed. Sarah had longed to be a mother for decades. It was at age 65 that God originally made this promise to her. She was 65. In this passage, in Genesis 18, it's 24 years later. She's 89. The promise has still not been fulfilled. She won't see the promise fulfilled until a year later when she is 90. So for 25 years, she goes without seeing the promise fulfilled. The promise itself was unbelievable, but notice the question that God asks Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, 14. He asks them not to think about the promise itself. Well, surely, you know, science, the r- rules of science and the rules of logic can be adjusted, and surely you could conceive... He doesn't try to reason with her or rationalize with her about how the promise is trustworthy. The question God asks to Sarah and Abraham is a question that redirects the focus away from the promise and the content of the promise and focuses it on himself. What's the question God asks? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a question that forces them to think about who is God? Who is the one making the promise? Does he have power? Does he have wisdom? Is he sovereign? Is he trustworthy? And so Abraham and Sarah are called to measure the promise not by the content of the promise, but by the one who makes the promise. This is the totally, totally the opposite way of how we tend to make promises in our lives. A few years ago, Um, My family and I were living in an apartment, and my kids desperately wanted a family dog. And so, like a good father, I promised them a dog, but I promised them a dog based not on my wisdom of, well, when I, your wise and loving father, deem it the best and most appropriate time to have a dog, and when 
we accrue the means necessary for that dog. And when you're in an age where I discern that you can help take care of the dog, I didn't try to rationalize with them and say, trust me. I did what we kind of always tend to do, and I said, we'll get a dog when we get a house. I made the promise based on some other external circumstance being fulfilled, not on my decision or my wisdom, child, trust me, but we'll do, it, we'll do it later. We'll do it when we get a house, which, by the way, was a terrible thing to say because <laughs> then they didn't just want a dog. They wanted a house, which is far harder to fulfill. Brilliant. That's the way we tend to make promises, and yet God, again and again and again throughout his word, makes promises and swears by himself that they will come true. He even loses that language in the book of Hebrews. He swears by himself, by his character, by his power, by his authority, calling people to trust in him, not necessarily in the promise itself. The gap between God's promise and our experience cannot be fulfilled by sheer grit of faith. The gap between the promise and the fulfillment, the gap between the promise and faith is filled by the Holy Spirit redirecting our gaze away from our circumstances and away from even the promise in isolation itself towards reconsidering the character of our God who makes these promises. If we trust the promiser, we can trust his great promises and patiently await their fulfillment. And that's the kind of faith that God was after in Genesis 18. That's why he asked the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the kind of faith that God is after in Hebrews 11. You notice Hebrews 11, remember, it opens with reminding people that faith is a matter of trusting in something that is unseen. And every single person that's mentioned in Hebrews 11 is called to believe in something they cannot see, whether it's Noah trusting that a flood is coming or Abraham trusting that a land will be given. Right? He's told to go, but he's not told the name of the land. He's not told how many enemy nations live in the land. He's just told that the land will, will come and start walking. And so God asks us, commends us, to look to him, not just the promises. We measure the dependability of God's promises by his character, his dependability. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, really is, if, if you get lost in the, the scope of the book of Hebrews, it is a long and complex, theologically complex uh, book. If you get lost in the midst of the book as preaching through it on Sunday mornings or talking about Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12.2 is shorthand for the message of Hebrews. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight which sin and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the rates that is set before us. And here's the message of the book. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The faith that the book of Hebrews is after is a faith that looks to Jesus, looks to his person, looks to his trustworthiness, to his wisdom. Paul Tripp in his book, Broken Down House, says, God knows there are many times when your life doesn't look like there is anyone ruling it, let alone someone wise and good. He knows there will be times when you will wish you could write your own story. He knows that at times you will be overwhelmed with what is on your plate. He knows that his plan will confuse you and confound you. And he knows that real rest cannot be found in understanding these things. Real rest is found in trusting the person. Real rest, real faith, is found in trusting a person, in trusting the living God. And so we can think of that old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. It's kind of this march-like call to gritty faith. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. I'm standing, standing on the promises of God. And in one way, yes, we should trust the promises of God, but not not based on the content of the promise of itself, not just by sheer grit. We stand on the promises of God because we trust intimately, personally, the God who makes the promises. And so another hymn, a song, a more modern song that I've listened to in recent weeks by a a Christian worship band from Australia, Australia called City Alight, a song called I Will Trust My Savior Jesus. It puts the puts faith and trust in that very personal context. It says, I will trust my Savior Jesus when my darkest doubts befall. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. I will trust my Savior Jesus. Trust him when my strength is small. For I know the shield of Jesus is the safest place of all. I will trust my Savior Jesus. He has said his way is best. And I know the path he's chosen leads to everlasting rest. Jesus, only Jesus, help me trust you more and more. Jesus, only Jesus, may my heart be ever yours. That's the kind of faith that Hebrews is after. That's the kind of faith that Sarah was commended for. She considered him faithful who had promised. And so her faith goes from Uh, Despair to delight in seeing that God is trustworthy rather than being overwhelmed and dismayed by the promise itself. And the second big thing, and more briefly, the second thing that happens in Sarah's faith in her, her thinking and wrestling with this promise and how God is working it out in her life, the second big lesson we learn from her is that our faith grows, our faith is made strong, when it looks backwards rather than looking forwards. So we're looking at a person, not at the content of the promise itself. And in faith, we look backwards for confidence, not forwards. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean we look literally backwards in time, backwards in redemptive history, to your own life remembering how God has fulfilled promises, how he has been faithful, And all of us, I hope and pray, can give evidence of that, of God's work in your own life, 
or his amazing grace in the life of someone near you. We could all bear witness to that, but we especially look backwards in time in redemptive history to see how has God fulfilled his promises. Is God trustworthy? Is God powerful? Is God faithful? And as we read his word and we look through the pages of redemptive history, we say, yes, he's a faithful rescuer. He promises He promises to give his people safety through a flood, and he does it. He promises to provide for his people, and even though famine comes through Joseph being abandoned and sold to Egypt, he provides, through Joseph's wisdom, and Egypt's abundance for Jacob's household. God provides promise and fulfills the promise of calling out his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt through the miraculous plagues and the miraculous opening of the Red Sea, allowing Israel to escape and consuming the Egyptians. And again and again and again throughout redemptive history. In Sarah's own life, she had to learn that lesson of looking backwards to see evidences of God's trustworthiness in order to trust him for the future. And so in Sarah's own life, amazing examples of God's provision and faithfulness. Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt They go to Egypt, um, and while in Egypt, Abraham lies about who Sarah is. She is beautiful. He feels they'll get in trouble if people, especially if the Pharaoh, finds out that she is his wife. He thinks that his life will be threatened. Um, It's a little bit of a confusing story. The bottom line is he lies to Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh gives him great gifts and treasures in order for Sarah to be in Pharaoh's household. Once Pharaoh discovers that Sarah is Abraham's wife, he simply tells Abraham and Sarah to leave, but to leave with all of the treasures that he has already given them. And so this crazy detour and this lying and scheming and manipulating ends up increasing Abraham's wealth by God's amazing grace and provision, increasing Abraham's wealth to go back into the land of Canaan stronger, more secure. So Sarah can think backwards of God's work in providing for them material, materially. Sarah can think backwards about how God has been faithful to put their tent where it is. They left Ur, They wandered around the Fertile Crescent. They ended up down in Egypt for a while, and now their tent is in the promised land of Canaan. Yes, there are still enemies in the land, but their tent is where God said it would be. And so the the promise of being given a land is beginning to be fulfilled. Sarah could look at even in this own moment, she could observe that they are God's people that God has drawn near to them because God, in the form of these three men, has come and appeared. God is not distant, but he is present. God is not far removed, but he draws near. And so Sarah could learn to look backwards and see God's faithfulness in the past, trusting it for the future. So true faith doesn't rest in looking forward and seeing exactly when and how a promise will be fulfilled. True faith looks backwards. It looks backwards to God's promises being fulfilled. And of course, the greatest and most 
wonderful and classic promise that we see being fulfilled in God's word is the promise of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the promise of redemption being fulfilled for all of God's people, past, present, and future, through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so again, Hebrews 12.2 is instructive. It calls us to look to Jesus, the person, and then notice why it says we should trust Jesus, this person. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We trust Jesus because he has fulfilled the promise of redemption by going to the cross. He has fulfilled the promise of new life by being raised again. He is now fulfilling the promises of interceding and pleading for God's people because he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, as Hebrews 12.2 says. He is our advocate, our great high priest. And so we measure God's ability to do what he's promised by looking at what he has done. The creator of his people, the miraculous redeemer of his people, made like his people, dying and rising for his people, ruling over his people. And so again, that song I quoted earlier goes on to say, Oh, on the cross, how it was seen. I can go now ever trusting in the one who died for me. What could I bring for your gift is complete, so I trust you, simply trust you, Lord, with every part of me. Jesus, only Jesus, help me trust you more and more. Jesus, only Jesus, may my heart be ever yours. And of course, Acts chapter 2, Peter says to those who hear the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, he says, how do we respond in faith? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice what he says next. For the promise... For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And so we trust in that promise of forgiveness of sins, of, of the reception of the Holy Spirit, of new life, of everlasting rest, even if we are far off, if we place our faith in Jesus, the one who died, those promises are yes and amen because of who he is. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you fulfilled that promise to Sarah, that you gave her a son named Isaac, whose name laughter even speaks of that transition from her despair to her delight in seeing your promises fulfilled. And so, Father, in our lives, in those places and circumstances of our lives where your promises seem to be unfulfilled or unbelievable. Father, we pray that we would learn to trust you, the promiser. And we pray that you would give us <clears throat> eyes of faith and spiritual memory to remember how you have been faithful in the past and therefore to trust you for the present and future. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.